Hello and welcome to this episode of Grid Forward Chats. Today, Bryce will be talking with Jay Brister from General Fusion and Wal Van Leer from Chrysalix about fusion generation. As the electric utility industry continues to look for cleaner ways to provide reliable power to their customers in the face of rapid climate change, nuclear power is discussed a lot less than things like solar, wind, or hydro. While there may be reasons for that, the potential of something like fusion is high enough to warrant a seat at the discussion table. We hope that through this conversation today, you'll learn something about the possibilities and the future of clean energy. Take it away, Bryce. Welcome to the next episode of Grid Forward Chats. I'm Bryce Yonker. Today we're going to cover the future and the potential with fusion energy. We have two fantastic guests who are going to help us unpack this topic. So Jay Brister is the Chief Business Development Officer at General Fusion. And alongside him, we have Wall Van Leer. Wall and I go way back, and Wall is a founding partner with a venture fund called Chrysalix. So gentlemen, thanks for being on. Jay, can I ask you to maybe introduce yourself, give us a bit of background on who you are and what's General Fusion about? Thanks, Bryce. Glad to be here today and good to see uh, Wall here with us too. Um, as you said, I'm the Chief Business Development Officer for General Fusion, and we see General Fusion as pursuing the most you know, practical approach and advanced approach to commercializing fusion. As the Chief Business Development Officer, I have responsibility for the business development, government relations, and communications functions within the company, and I'm really focused on developing uh, the fusion market as we become the leading company in fusion energy. A bit of background, um, over 40 years in energy space in kind of, you know, the global energy markets and, and power markets. Before uh, joining General Fusion, I was in London leading uh, AECOM's uh, power business development function there. Prior to that, uh, I was the similar role with the Generation Empower small modular reactor. And for that, with uh, CH2M Hill doing a lot of global energy related things, CH2M Hill is now Jacobs. And then 25 years before that, investor-owned utilities um, in operational and energy development roles. Great. Thanks, Jay. Lots of background. Wall, why do we have a venture capitalist on a session about fusion? Give us a little bit of background about yourself and, and your perspectives on this topic. Well, I'm a director of the company. My firm, Chrysalix, uh, was the first institutional investor in, uh, in Chrysalix. We go back to July of 09. So we have been in this company for 12 years. Uh, and uh, we think that within another 12 years, uh, within that time frame, we will be commercial with this company, for sure. What do I bring to a company like General Fusion? I think I bring a significant background in energy and the environment uh, as a university professor, as a long-time consultant with McKinsey and Company in, uh, in energy, as an executive uh, of one of Canada's leading energy companies, and since 2001 as a leading VC in this uh, space. And I think that uh, my insights and connections, both in the industry and in the political landscape, uh, are beneficial to the company moving forward. Great. Thanks, Wal. Um, today is Wednesday, August 25th. 
we are well into kind of the new normal or whatever everybody wants to consider the pandemic era now, about a year and a half in. So I ask this question every time, have since we started the podcast. Jay, how are you? How are the folks at General Fusion doing amongst a very unique time? Uh, it's It's been an interesting time, but it's also been a very, very exciting time for General Fusion. And just over this period, I think the company has been making some really uh, big strides forward. You probably saw in June our announcement to partner with the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority at Cullum to deliver our our fusion demonstration plant. It's it's, a $400 million project um, that's going to do the real first public-private partnership in fusion energy at power plant scale. Uh, in addition to that, our, our company has doubled in size over this time frame. So we've been very active in getting the technology uh, out, advancing the technology, and then building our internal infrastructure to allow us to go forward. So a lot going on in spite of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we want to make sure we talk about is the demonstration plan and what it means for the future of the company and the sector. But before we do, can we define fusion energy? I don't think it's something that a lot of our audience thinks about a lot, or if they have, it's been in passing. So maybe we don't need to do a full, we don't have time to do a full physics 101 class, but can you briefly describe how fusion energy works? Maybe then start transitioning into, you know, why does it hold uh, so much promise for the energy sector? Yeah, I'll be glad to. So Bryce, basically fusion is what powers the sun and the stars. And it it starts for us with with isotopes of hydrogen. And fusion occurs when these isotopes of hydrogen are are forced together at a a high velocity. And when these items are forced together, they actually fuse. And when they do fuse together, uh, we actually create a, a nucleus that has a higher mass, but energy is released when that happens. And the amount of energy released is significant. And that's where the promise of fusion energy comes from. Um, When you look at the isotopes of hydrogen that we use, what that means is our fuel basically comes from seawater. So there's an ample supply of that for for a long, long time. Uh, And the way we see the, the promise in fusion, it's taking, you know, this technology in, in which there are basically no emissions, um, no long-lived waste issues to deal with, and you've got a clean, reliable, dispatchable energy source that can really impact how the energy uh, market, how the energy world goes forward as it looks to how to solve um, our net zero commitments that we're making around the world. And so can you help describe what's maybe unique or special or what the role of general fusion plays in the overall landscape of, of the industry? Yeah, well, uh, it's let me talk a little bit about our technology in, 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 to contextualize it in fusion space. So we're taking an approach to a fusion called magnetized target fusion. I think it's a very practical approach. Uh, it relies very solidly on existing technology. So there's not a lot of exotics required to get there. And when you look at our approach to fusion, I think there are four fundamentals around this that I can quickly run through to explain why uh, MTF is a differentiating technology. Number one, it's practical, but we've, we've also got a material durability perspective to our technology that we, we see because the way our technology works, we use an electromechanical process to compress a liquid metal liner in a fusion vessel to create fusion inside that vessel. Well, that liquid metal that's inside there provides a buffer actually between what's happening in fusion space and the physical fusion vessel itself. So that's a, an inherent kind of protection that 
kind of dispenses with um, other technologies have have what's called a first world problem. Basically, you're exposing the vessel to actual fusion conditions. So you need a power plant that's going to run with a capacity factor for an extended period of time. And that's kind of inherent in the ability of our technology to move forward. Let me build on for uh, for the common layman on what uh, what Jay was saying, because the common layman will say nuclear is nuclear. And it's very important to stress here that with going to fusion, you cannot have the runaway processes that you have seen in disasters like Chernobyl or Fukushima. It is safe nuclear energy. It hardly produces any radiation. The half lifetime of the waste is is less than 200 years, not 200,000 years. So it's manageable. And that nuclear waste is just a fraction of what you see in a fission plant. So not all nuclear is the same. This nuclear fusion is inherently safe. It creates abundant, clean, affordable energy. And that is what the world needs. Yes. Aside from splitting the difference between splitting atoms and compressing them, it's it's a very different process. And I'll get into that from the regulatory perspective a little later on in our conversation. Last question before we get into what we really wanted to talk about, which was the commercial role. How close are we to net energy? Because I know that that's been kind of the, the problem. It's not that the chemistry or the physics don't work. It's that it's been taking more energy in these projects than they net can produce. So is this something that, you know, we're getting closer to? And then I'll bridge that right into our conversation on the on the demonstration plant in the UK. Well, I mean, if I look at this from a magnetized target fusion perspective, that's what the fusion demonstration plant is all about, Bryce. So for us, it's taking a scaled approach to fusion. So this is a 70% scale approach to demonstrating magnetized target fusion. So it puts us on a trajectory where when we, we'll get into more about the specifics of the machine in a minute, but when we look at what this machine is going to do for us, it's going to validate that our technology does work. We're going to reach con, you know fusion conditions. We're going to use deuterium-deuterium isotope fusion in our fusion demonstration plant as opposed to deuterium-tritium, which will be in our operating plant. But we will be able to demonstrate the, the, the viability of magnetized target fusion such that we can scale that to a full-size power-producing plant and then secondly, it also gives us, because we're building this at scale, the ability to take the economics of this machine and translate that forward into our power plant to give us a better understanding of what that looks like as we go into commercialization of the technology. Great. Well, hopefully we all know a little bit more about fusion. Let's dive right in. As you said, there's a demonstration plant that got announced earlier this summer in the in the UK. Can you talk a little bit about what led up to this milestone and really why it's such a significant development, not only for general fusion, but the overall industry? It culminated a very long search globally to figure out where we were going to, to find the right host for our fusion demonstration plant. And for us too, it culminates, um, as well said, probably more than a decade worth of work where as we look at our technology, it's, it's taking the constituent components that go into how magnetized target fusion works. So our compression system, our, our plasma injector, our control systems, taking those constituent parts that we're developing in Canada and putting those all together and being able to demonstrate those at scale at, at the fusion demonstration plant uh, in, in Column. Um, several factors led us to that point. Uh, number one, the UKAA is a great partner. Um, great, great technical collaboration opportunities on a going forward basis. 
It's also one of the few places on the planet where there's actually a fusion supply chain. So pre-existing activities there are also significant that, that lead us to that point uh, to be able to move those things forward. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the demonstration plant itself is going to operate at a demonstration facility, so we won't be power producing. So we will actually you know, do the compression on our fusion vessel once a day, as opposed to our operating power plant, which will pulse up to once a second. So kind of size and scale there of how those things are going to differentiate a little bit. The machine itself, I mean, things are moving forward uh, right now. We hope to start construction a little bit later in 2022 and go operational in 2025. So that kind of gives you a timeline for our deliverability. Any highlights on what, what led us to this point? Well, I mean, you should realize that uh, individual parts of the overall system have already been built and tested at General Fusion in Vancouver. And we are now really at the point that we have left the lab and are completely in the engineering phase. And we do that engineering phase close to a lot of potential customers in Europe. So that's very important. And you should not, I mean, it's counterintuitive that we do this in the COVID time, that we go out and become a truly international company. So this is absolutely fascinating what, uh, what the company is, is currently doing. It is engineering a full scale, well, 70% scale uh, power plant on its way to be commercial by 2030. And what lessons, what, what, what constitutes success with this plant? What do you want to learn for the company, for the industry? What do you want to demonstrate and prove with this plant? Bryce, I mean, it, it's all about demonstrating the, the viability of magnetized target fusion. That's the demonstration capability that's there. So that step is just a huge step. That's the game changing step for us to take the parts that we validated their performance on an individual component level integrating them into a fusion machine that's able to achieve the outcome that we want through this compression, you know, 100 million degrees C, producing neutrons, and then being able to take that and roll that into our, our power plant design. So, I mean, the FDP is going forward. I mean, parallel with that, we're working on our commercial pilot plant design. So it's a parallel set of activities that are going forward uh, and it will go forward over the next decade with the relationships between the two as they progress. So mutually informed as we go forward to be able to, as Wall said, have a power producing machine by the early 2030s. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can take a step back and talk a little bit around some of the context and energy landscape and fusion's role within that. So over the recent years, cost of renewables has has driven energy prices in a lot of jurisdictions to negative <laughs> at regular intervals. And this is even while their baseload resources are coming offline. So I know maybe it's somewhat premature, but you know, how will fusion energy be able to compete in an energy market that has these kind of, um, you know, sensitivities to price and cost declines and just other dynamics that'll be unfolding as, you know, maybe fusion's coming, coming online commercially? It's something that we're definitely aware of. Um, and when you look at, at fusion uh, energy, um, it's going to be a dispatchable source. Um, economics, you know, 50 to $60 a megawatt hour. Uh, when you look at renewables and kind of where they fit into the portfolio, uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'm talking to utilities all over the world. And when you look at a utility that has a large uh, renewable content in its portfolio, what's their biggest challenge today? It's, it's 
how do I, how do I meet my duck curve challenge? And so these utilities are actually beginning to kind of take LCOE, move it to the side and look at dollars per kilowatt. When do I need the energy and what does it cost me when I need it? So for a utility like that, the ability to solve that duck curve problem, it's a great fit, right? So we we can deal with the intermittency issues with uh, with renewables. When you look at a broader portfolio, the price point, the competitiveness of the technology allows from an energy transition perspective, utilities who are beginning to look forward and, and figure out how am I going to meet my net zero 2050 commitments given where I am today. I mean, conversations last week, it's like, I can see how I can get to 70, maybe 80, but without something like fusion, I cannot get to 100%. So that's where fusion energy makes the difference in the, in the long run. So it's looking now Getting fusion into energy thought, into, into integrated resource planning thought today is an essential component to allow the technology to move forward. While I know you work a, a lot around clean energy markets, so any thoughts around the competitive landscape? Well, I mean, the world has recognized that we have done a lot with wind and solar and biomass and batteries, and, and we have made great strides on our way to net zero by 2050. But we should realize that uh, electricity demand in that time frame will go up by 200%. And uh, there are two very important components. The, uh, as I call the second half of the net zero game, uh, will be played in energy intensive industries, cement, uh, aluminum producing, steel. Uh, so there is an enormous increase in demand coming up. Uh, and uh, fusion will play a role. To do that with just uh, the existing renewables uh, runs you into a number of tremendous issues. Uh, let me zoom in into one, space. People have not thought about this. But in many countries, you already... Uh, pushing the limits of what you can do with wind and solar because there is simply not uh, enough space. Like look at what is happening currently in the countries around the North Sea. They have an enormous hunger for uh, power and they have gone uh, to the sea. Uh, um, but even if they would completely populate the entire North Sea with wind power, it would only compensate for a fraction of the demand that you have moving forward. So that is where fusion comes in. I mean, we are going to produce abundant, uh, affordable, clean power in the form of baseload. And that's important. Well, that gets to my next question. While, you know, the promise of electrified transportation and other electrification opportunities you know, really seem to be accelerating. And, and I would argue the anemic load, electric load growth we've seen over the last decade plus is, is likely that tide, tide is about to turn. Um, so for example, there in BC, you know, there's the development of the major site C hydro project that's, that's trying to expand uh, energy generation. And is that the role that you see fusion being able to fill is as demand really starts ramping up for electrified transportation and other electrified resources? Where do you see some of those lines maybe crossing? The, the times are crossing in the 30s. I mean, what we will see is indeed like the role of fusion will be complementary to a lot of what uh, the existing renewables are doing, but it is simply not enough. Now, you alluded to hydropower. 
as a, a major source of energy. And in some jurisdictions in the world, it will. But let it be no mistake, uh, hydropower may also reduce in what it can supply. I mean, you have heard that here in the Pacific Northwest, we have an absolute record of 49.6 degrees C heat earlier this summer. What most people don't realize is that alongside, we saw an enormous acceleration of the melting of our glaciers. How long will hydropower be there? That's a very in, important question. So this is where uh, fusion really can play a role for the future. I mean, this is, uh, the world is changing rapidly and uh, we need to ensure that we can have enough supply and energy for the increasing demand that we will see. Jay, can I maybe ask you a question about how regulation for fusion energy may work? Would it be somewhat similar or entirely different than the way fission nuclear energy is regulated in the U.S. and internationally? Yeah, it will be entirely different. Um, it's, it's, it's more so about uh, the uh, health and safety of the workers just due to the inherent safety of the technology. So I think uh, when you look kind of globally, um, what's going on in the UK right now, we've been working uh, with, a, with a group over there. The basic premise in the UK is uh, existing safety regulations uh, are sufficient for fusion and environmental regulations. We're keeping the nuclear regulator out of it. In the, in the US, the US NRC has began, began a series of public meetings in, uh, earlier this year. We've been very active in those. In the US, you've got existing regulations, again, for um, more so devices than reactors. So in, in, in US NRC speak, Part 30 and Part 20 regulations are sufficient uh, to, to bound uh, the risk that's that's associated with delivering uh, this technology, more so like particle accelerators or nuclear medicine. And even in Canada, the CNSC is progressing their efforts as well. And, and just my discussions there, again, it's more so a structure around regulating devices more so than reactors. So our goal is to get to a, a much less uh, uh, you know, uh, overly burdensome tech, uh, set of regulations that don't need to be there because of the nature of the technology itself. So a lot of forward movement on that um, uh, globally. Yeah, we hope that the regulator will not become uh, a standaway in the development of uh, fusion. And, and we trust that that will not happen. I mean, let's, let's be fair about this. In the early days of solar, in every municipality, the local fire chief uh, would come out and, and have separate regulation. And that has, that has become more common. I mean, we need clear standards because all over the world, in the early 2030s, utilities and governments have committed to retire coal-fired power plants under their commitments to the Paris Agreement. And so 2030 is very crucial where we need to have the technology and the regulation in place to roll fusion out successfully. Can you talk a bit about the customers that you ultimately serve? I'm, I presume these are large assets that large utilities, grid operators, and maybe in some markets like independent power producers might be procuring. Is this an asset that they would be procuring similar to the baseload assets that were put in over the middle part of the 20th century? Or is there a different 
model that you all are envisioning? I mean, I, I think the deployment model recognizes that there's going to be an energy transition going forward. So our, our power plant design is going to be two, 250 megawatts. So as you, as you look in, it can be, the, in, you know, because of the nature of the technology can be placed close to the demand. So as portfolios today are looking ahead and, and looking at how do I decarbonize my portfolio? How do I build in more renewables? What's, what's the other resource that I need to close that last gap? That's where fusion energy comes in. And it's, it's a kind of a hand in glove fit to supplement, you know, renewables can take you so far. This is the bit that takes you that, that last leg to round out that, that full commitment that you're making. And it does so in a, in a very economic and, and complementary manner. So it's a, it's part of a, it's, it's, it's the portfolio enhancement tool that allows you to get to where you need to get to. Well, maybe I can send this one to you. Jay Fuel, welcome to elaborate. One of the especially hot topics right now is the role that aggregated distributed resources can and should play as valuable grid resources. This, this is a large scale asset, right? So this is different than that. Do you think that increasing appetite for more nimble and flexible assets could be a threat or is this just a different tool in the portfolio and you can't really be compared to an aggregated distributed uh, set of assets on coming on the grid? Well, in the oil and gas industry, we have seen in the past uh, 10 years, so almost 20 years, the energy traders uh, play a very significant role. Uh, if fusion comes up, this will be uh, a tremendous asset for them. Uh, and, and I think that uh, maybe not initially, but uh, in, uh, later in the 30s, in the 40s, they will jump at this. And I could see in that time frame, 15, 20 years from now, totally new models developing of approaching the customers. And, and I think that the, the big energy traders will, will lead that. Tesla Solar went to the power wall. Uh, think of what a trader could do with refined computation models uh, for individual customers in the in the 40s. I think that uh, we will see a lot of change. We will see an acceleration of change. Once a platform technology like uh, fusion energy breaks through, it will cause all kinds of commercial changes. And it's very excited, I'm very excited to, 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 to observe that. Here in the U.S., Congress has been considering some massive expenditures in infrastructure in the energy and grid space. And this started, you know, end of last year with the Energy Act of 2020. What role do you see federal government playing to accelerate key innovations like those in fusion? I, I think the passing of the Energy Policy Act of 2020 is tremendous. It created you know, for us uh, finally a, a platform for a, a cost share program for the development of fusion technology. So very encouraged to, to see that the, on the House side of things, that, that $45 million has been appropriated to, to fund that public-private partnership cost share program. And as we work through the end of this year, getting the Senate and in both houses of Congress to align on that, to fund this program, to further supplement, I guess, in the U.S., a role where the U.S., I mean, they're currently putting $600 million plus a year into, into fusion into uh, national lab space and advancement of fusion technology. By taking this step, they're going to be able to advance private fusion ventures to get to that fast track of uh, a power producing facility to kind of 
be the timeline that we talked about earlier in the early 2030s. So it's a great opportunity showing the government taking proactive uh, steps to allow that technology, fusion technology, to be advanced. Well, last question, certainly a timely one given these last few days, IPCC out with their recent dire report, Congress considering significant infrastructure expenditures, um, international governments gearing up for COP26. Um, what would your response be to, uh, I think there's discussion of net zero by 2050, but even you know a fully clean energy grid by 2035. What would your response be to the feasibility and the possibility of doing that without fusion in the equation? Um, Jay, maybe you first, and while we can give you the last word. Yeah, maybe I'll, then I'll start with, with maybe trying to characterize what do we actually have to do here? So when you look at the world today, what, 80% of, of generation is fossil fuel. The remainder is some other variant. So about 11% of that is renewables today. And of that, maybe 4% is renew of, of wind and solar. So as you look at, you know, how do I get to a net zero uh, grid? How do I get to a net zero energy portfolio? There's a massive amount of change that has to occur. So the rate of change, number one, has to increase in what we're doing. Um, the available portfolio of resources today to allow you to achieve that is limited. That's where fusion comes in and solves that problem. So can you get there without fusion? Uh, I think fusion is, is the essential component to allow the electricity markets to decarbonize as we go forward into the next decade. And again, take that forward into the next two decades to ensure that by the time we do reach 2050, we're looking at an opportunity to really achieve a net zero. What do you think, Wall? What's, what's the role of fusion by 2035 or 2050 and how can we get there? Can we get there without fusion for, for, for fully it's decarbonized? Absolutely crucial. Uh, we cannot achieve net zero by 2050 without fusion. In order to do this, we need politicians to set the direction and we need investment companies to tie uh, the uh, income, the remuneration of the executives to energy transition. I think that is very important. It is important that ESG investors not just divest from oil and gas, but that at least part of their money goes actively into opportunities for the energy transition, including, including fusion. Fusion is the holy grail of clean energy. Without it, we cannot achieve net zero by 2050. <laughs> well, you heard it here. Uh, Jay and Wall, thank you for being on. We are rooting for the success of that demonstration plant. Look forward to having you back on to get some updates on how successful it has been. But congratulations on the major milestone. And thanks for sharing some insights on the, the future and the potential for fusion energy. Thanks, Bryce. Glad to be here.